Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The New Standard. And as always, joining me, my partner in crime to my left, Neil Kulong. What's up, Big Neil? You know, Lance, it's a great day. We're happy to be here. We're excited for the show. Things are great in my world. How are they in yours? They are absolutely great. Anytime I get a chance to uh, get up, breathe the nice crisp air and get on a program and talk about the Steelers. It is a great day. And it's also a great day. I want to give a big shout out to several family members who are graduating from college today. I want to give a big shout out to my little cousin, Trey Wilson, my cousin, Trey Turk. And last but not least to Ashley Wilson, who's getting her master's degree. The two Trey's are getting their bachelor's degree. So big up to the Taylor family um, and big up to the families uh, on getting their college educations. Uh, this is a great day. This is a great month. A lot of graduations. I, I love the month of May, seeing all the families celebrate uh, their kids matriculating and, and, and walking across that stage and graduate and, con- and graduating. Also want to send that big shout out to anybody listening to the show. Big up to Ollie Howard Species. Big up to Steeler Freak, who has a sibling or loved one. Uh, celebrating a graduation Uh, the new standard wants to send our congratulations out to all of you before we hop into the program and the title of the program today is simply what are otas we're going to jump into that and we're going to break down a special six pack of not necessarily predictive statements but just some statements that we want to jump into that we are going to create for each other that we don't know yet. And so it's going to be interesting. I got a doozy towards the end of the show to kick to Neil, uh, to Neil for Neil to jump in. I think you guys are going to enjoy that. Last but not least, you can always please like and subscribe to the program on YouTube. Since the draft show, subscriptions have jumped a lot. So thank you for that. Go to YouTube, do a search for the new standard and Lance Williams or Neil Kulong. Also, Listen to the show via podcast. Make sure you drive with us and, you know, get on your local commuter or whatever. You want to just laugh and bust out laughing at something that we say. Take us with you and find us on your local podcast feeder, whatever podcast feeder you use, Apple, Google, Spotify, anyone that you use. Do a search for Steelers and the new standard. Before we jump into it, I want to just say this. I never want to assume the level of football acumen of our listeners. I think that would do you guys a disservice. So this first question that I'm going to toss to Neil is very simple. Define what the acronym OTAs mean. Just very simply. I'm assuming Neil did not hear the question. Because it, it Neil throws is, up a little bit. You are yeah. asking one, right? Yes. OTAs is organized training activities. What that is essentially is uh, permission um, it, from the team, from the league, uh, for it, through the collective bargaining agreement for players to gather at team facilities and work out, use their equipment, do whatever. But there is no coaching allowed fact they're not allowed to watch they can get together run seven on seven drills um just think of it like if you were on a team you had a coachless practice 
They are strictly voluntary, though people like myself will make an issue out of the guy that has a problem with his contract not showing up. Hi, Deontay Johnson. I'm still blocked. Thanks, buddy. It really kind of it, it depends on where a player is in his workout, whether he wants to be there, whether they're in the area already and have nothing better to do. It, it's generally the lightest tentpole event on the NFL calendar. <clears throat> um, but we'll make a big deal of it because, frankly, there is nothing to talk about outside of minicamp between now and the start of training camp all the way at the end of July. So that's essentially it. Let me let me ask you a quote and quote. If you're looking at us on YouTube, you'll see my quote quote fingers as they mystically appear in and out of the logo behind <laughs> me. When you say it's like my head. when you say coaches aren't involved in organized team activities, and we both have played on sports teams at various levels. Um one thing you don't want is um yeah, I, I, I'm I'm trying to think of a bad cliche. When I think of pros organizing team activities, I think of eh, is it disorganized? I mean, what what's the organization of it? Like, what's the emphasis of it? So when you say coaches aren't involved, are they really not involved? Are they providing a general plan for what they want the position groups to do or the rookies to do? Is there any template? Because I can imagine it wouldn't be worth much to do an organized team activity if there wasn't some quote-unquote organization of the team activity. So who's organizing the activities? And how does uh, that work? The, the literal answer to that, I think, obviously, is uh, up to the team. It's going to be specific team to team. I would imagine... Um, consistent veterans and or captains would be the ones to do that. At the same time, let's just put this in reference to the Steelers. I'm sure Mike Tomlin uh, has gone over with Cam Hayward the sorts of things that they'll be doing in minicamp and leaving it up to Cam Hayward and his intelligence and experience to relate that as part of uh, whatever plan they might have. That said, I, I agree with you. I think the term organized, um, it, it tends to probably suggest a little more than what it really is. And that isn't to mean that it's loose and it's not structured or anything like that. It's just organization in this sense, I think, is more uh, schedule. I think it's more time and place. I think it, it's the fact that they are getting together for uh, something of an official team activity that is voluntary. Uh, but it, it's not something that has coaches directing what everybody to do from what I've understood of it, talking to players and they really don't say much, which kind of suggests to me that they're it's conditioning more than anything. Like they'll go through that you would do uh, coming up in mini camp and in, in training camp uh, to give, especially the younger players, a good sense of how to prepare themselves for those upcoming um, supervised events. I, I do want to apologize. I said training activities for some reason. I have no idea why, uh, it's organized team activities, uh, OTAs. So it, it's really uh, a collection of the players getting together to work out. You know, the, the trendy thing now is the high-priced quarterback flying uh, the skill position players down to some exotic location where they can go on a field somewhere and run routes, throw, probably run a bit, um, and, and then 
I'm sure go golfing, go out to the bars, do whatever it is that they do. It, it's more team building than anything else. Um, they get together and they work out, but that's really kind of the, the, the baseline expectation of what they're doing uh, at this point in the off season anyway. So um, I, I don't think there's a whole lot behind it, but it is an opportunity for them to get together uh, at the team facility and do some work, some team related work. Even if that's as simple as you have a new quarterback, get to know the new quarterback and, and uh, what they're seeing in the playbook and what types of things they want to look for. Things like that. I, I don't think it's incredibly formal, but it, it's organized in the sense that they have a time and a location in which to do it. So there's going to be no installation of the offense. Um, it's it's is it it's largely un it's unpadded as well, correct? There's no oh, yeah, or yeah. are they in shells or so it's nothing. It's just shorts and shirts. Yeah, yeah, they, they're not going to hit at all. In fact, now that I'm thinking back on it, <clears throat> I want to elaborate to this too with this, Lance. And I'm sorry, I know that you wanted this to be simple. There are three phases to OTAs, and the last one, um, coaches are allowed to watch. <clears throat> they are not allowed to conduct drills or anything like that, uh, but they do set up like scrimmages, for example. I believe, somebody correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe uh, most recently, um, I know Urban Meyer got zapped for doing stuff within OTAs that he wasn't allowed to do, and that cost him money or a draft pick or whatever i think the ravens were guilty of this last year or the year before um it, it's it's something the players watch and monitor and they don't you know if the coach gets too involved with something then then there's a problem there's only one phase of that that they're allowed to do it though and the three phases of the otas phase one phase two and phase three i think phase three is the one in which um they are allowed to compete against each other. In other words, you can have a receiver go up against a defensive back. You can't do that in the first two. Um, there are a lot of rules to it. And in reality, to an average fan, it really doesn't matter. Um, most of them aren't even open to the media. You might get a, a, an opportunity here and there. One practice, they're allowed to show up. Um, no pictures. Uh, players are not obligated to speak. So a lot of the times we don't hear about a lot of this stuff uh, for Com they'll call them competitive reasons. It's more control issues. They, they don't want, you know, teams, this is the dirty secret. And yes, this comes from a, a reporter's perspective. Teams do not want players to speak to the media any more often than they have to. They exactly. don't want any information getting out. And I'll, I, I think I've told you this story before, Lance. I feel safe saying it now. Um, Martavis Bryant's first suspension uh, four games back at the, the 2015 season. He was eligible to come back the Monday following their week four game, which he did. During practice, I saw it, as did 15 other reporters who were there. He did something, um, looked like to his leg, and he kind of hobbled gingerly off the field, and we didn't see him again. Then he wasn't there to, to, to speak after practice. The rule was... I don't know what it is today, but it was then um, unless you got confirmation from a team official or a player, you could not write about an injury to a player. Um, it, Martavis Bryant's leg could have snapped off unless there was public record or some or a teammate or a, 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 a team official telling you that it happened. You couldn't report it. Understandably, Nobody said a word about it. They were preparing to play then the, the San Diego Chargers in week five. 
and Bryant technically practiced. So he wasn't even on the injury report. And along with that, since he had not been yet activated from the suspension list, they weren't required to discuss his injury at all. So you, you get into these, the, the rules of it are, are so incredibly tight. Um, and I get why to some degree, but sometimes it's just silly. Um, it's frustrating as a reporter, not that this matters, but everyone's screaming at you daily. Is Brian going to play? Is Brian going to play? And you literally can't say anything about it. There's nothing to say except he hasn't been removed from the suspension list yet. And you don't want to do that because then people think he's still suspended and that's not really fair either. So um, OTAs have <clears throat> a bunch of rules um, that, that come with it as well. And teams do not really want the ample opportunity for players to go in front of cameras and microphones and say stuff. Uh, they don't want to discuss injuries. They certainly don't want to discuss strategy of any kind. So there's not much at OTAs except find the rookies and try to talk them up a little bit. And as we saw, uh, Mike Tomlin certainly doesn't like the rookies uh, speaking a whole lot as he, I don't think, um, I don't think he was entirely trying to be funny when he, he, photobombed George Pickens when he was speaking to the media. I think he was kind of sending a message while trying to be funny at the same time. Um, stop talking. Stop talking. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, basically stop like, talking. I'm here. I'm listening. Just so you know, I'm everywhere. Yeah, stop um, talking, young man. That, that sort of thing. You know, I, I I have a huge amount of respect for Mike Tomlin. I think he's a phenomenal coach. He's a phenomenal uh, uh, leader. High-level skills in those regards. He knows what he's doing. There's very few things Mike Tomlin doesn't do uh, deliberately um, they don't like guys speaking a whole lot so OTAs are an opportunity for that so they don't really open it up and the smart players won't talk but at the same time that's why you go out and pay somebody like Cam Hayward uh, to be kind of the, the, the mouthpiece of the team he's the guy who will go speak he's the one who's going to go deliver the message to the media while everyone else literally scurries past him into the locker room <laughs> to not talk to the media um, that, that literally happens. I'm not making that up. It, there are a couple guys who are like that on the team. You'll notice that they're the ones who speak to the media the most often. It's not because they love it. It's because there's clearly something behind closed doors between the player and the Steelers that he needs to be the, the, the spokesperson unofficially. Uh, he needs to be the one to, to dive on the grenade when there's something out there. He's got to be the one to eat up all the media time um, whenever possible. And people in the media know it too. So <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, it it comes with being um, that guy that gets paid that much yeah. on the team as well exactly. as, you know, being one of the better players. Before we jump into the last few questions about OTAs, I want to jump into this question here from Ollie Howard, Species 5618, excuse me. Neil, break down what an NFL player needs to learn week to week in regards to the playbook during the season. I can't understand why players are so position specific, uh, like wide receivers. So during a given week when the game plan, when it's installed, just kind of break down one in the NFL really quickly, their responsibilities week to week Boy, um, during the season. That's a, a, a phenomenally intricate question. Um, the truth is it could be as simple as run here or there, or it could be as detailed as every play that they run every responsibility that a receiver has is going to be dependent upon something that just happened. In other words, they're completely reactive to all of it. So they don't know when they break the huddle, they hear what's called 
And a lot of times with the receiver, it's check with me. It's check the line, check the coverage. They're running option routes. They have to be Options, able to read. Yeah. Really, the, 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 safe, the free safety is, is what the offense reads more than anything else. You look at their coverage, their positioning. You look at uh, the threat of blitz. Um, generally speaking, the closer into the line a player is, the more he has to read the rush and with it, the coverage behind it. Um, they're communicating with the quarterback, and that in and of itself is what determines from the onset, pre-snap, what route they're going to run. After snap, the defense changes. They don't like to show you flat out what they're doing necessarily. The receiver and what they're doing, what the quarterback has to read, can depend entirely on that. <clears throat> um, the Patriots, for example, they run a ton of option routes. Uh, option meaning they're breaking off the line, and based on what coverage is showing them, that's the route they're going to run. Simplified, if, if you've got your corner showing inside technique on you, you're going to run an out route. If the guy is straight up on you, you're going to run an in or a hook, depending on what they're trying to do. Those are the kinds of things that they're going over week to week. And a lot of that is based on defensive tendencies. So team A runs cover two a lot. You're probably going to be cutting them short. You're probably going to be running a lot of posts down the middle. It depends on where they are uh, before the snap and after the snap. As far as the playbook is concerned, and I've, I've said this a bunch as well, I really want to hammer this in. A playbook is a, an outline. It is a structure. You have called plays, but in, in modern NFL parlance, so much of it is what you are doing in response to what the defense is doing. You have to know keys. You have to know what you're reading, where you're going. As a receiver, um, I'll use Juju Smith-Schuster as an example. I ripped him a little bit last week, and I, I feel kind of bad about that because – the thing I love about Juju outside his physicality is the fact that he is a very, very smart football player. It's something he doesn't get credit for because he dances, which is bullshit. But the fact is it, more of why he's in the slot is because of that. He's really intelligent. He reads defenses very well. He knows how to find where he needs to go in coverage and he knows where other people are going to be as well. That's why he's such a good blocker. Um, Juju in the slot will look at the line and he will know, based on the play call, uh, what their their pass rush is looking like and what their coverage is looking like. Because of that, that dictates what he's going to do. You hear the phrase all the time, hot route, right? Hot route is something that you run in response to a blitz on a certain side of the field or based with a, a, a certain level of protection. Juju is not the guy who calls the hot route. They don't even really call it. They just know to do it. Um, most of why Juju's routes were, were so short in Pittsburgh uh, was because he was running hot. And what that means is he's releasing off the line to a spot. The quarterback can get rid of the ball very quickly because they're facing a certain blitz or there's a weakness in a certain spot that they see. So you study the playbook to know what you need to do. And you're working on how you're going to adapt to what a defense is doing to you or showing you. And a lot of that is up to the quarterback. So I, I don't want to say the receivers don't have much responsibility they have the responsibility to know what to do based on what the quarterback says. The quarterback is the one that has to figure all of that out before and after the snap. It's, it, it's beyond, I, I have no clue how they do it at that level. Absolutely no clue. It seems impossible to me. And I was a quarterback. I don't know how to the, to the level that uh, they have to study. They have to understand 
how the, the entire machine works to be successful at that. I'm not even talking the physical traits to be successful at that mentally is just unreal. And this is a big part of why quarterbacks are, are playing the game so much later into their careers. They figure it out mentally and that's what they're winning with. Good receivers know how the quarterback is going to do things and know where the quarterback wants to go in certain situations. And that's, that comes through the playbook, um, what they're studying and what they're trying to accomplish. And I think the nuance comes to how you teach it and because guys learn differently. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's where you differentiate good coaches from great coaches mm-hmm. to Hall of Fame coaches is how to teach and communicate what you want to get across from a playbook and a game plan perspective week to week, how to condense it to a, to a point where someone receives it, retains it and can repeat it. That's where you get excellent coaches. And it takes a while to figure out your individual players and your individual style of communicating with players. That's why coaching changes every particular year because your personnel changes every particular year and you have to figure out, how to communicate best with those individuals at a position group level, at a head coach level to your position coaches. A lot of this is communication because from a talent perspective, a lot of these teams are very similar. It's individual players and coaches that take good teams to great teams. It's just a little bit of a difference from the individual superstar and really good coaching level. But let's jump into a quick few OTA big topics that may come out and this speaks to Mark Tobin's question heard anything about to it but before we jump into that want to give a big shout out to your guy of Steelers Wire Kirk Popejoy who wrote an article earlier this week four bold predictions about the Steelers next round of OTAs give me a quick true and false to these before we jump into our six-pack Deontay Johnson will not be at OTAs. True or false? Um, he won't be at all of them. I'll bet he will go to one or two just to get people like those in the media office back. Um, it's certainly not rare that there are guys, especially the veteran guys, that don't go to all of them. But some of them will be there. They'll make an appearance. Um, you know, press some fl- press some flesh. Uh, maybe hit the golf course with him later on, something to that effect. He, he, I don't think he'll be there for all of them because he's a veteran. Um, and I, I just, I don't think he has as much leverage as he thinks he does. If, if he wants to not go to OTAs, that's fine. I mean, it, it's not, it'd be no skin off my back if I was the Steelers. You're not sending the message that you think that you're sending to the team with that. And it, it's just, there's nothing positive to gain from not going now that said um guys have other obligations they're not obligated to go to this so i I don't want to act like he's being anti-team if he doesn't go and that's what's going to happen if he's not there for the first day somebody's going to tip pony off he's going to tweet that he wasn't there for all we know and this has happened guy left because his his woman's uh given birth to his first kid we don't know that unless they tell us so you don't want to try to make more out of it than it is. But at the same time, Deontay strikes me as a guy that puts the work in. Um, I think we'll see what kind of leader he is this year. 
they're banking heavily on him being being an excellent leader. Um, I think the leaders certainly need to be there because there are younger guys and two of them within his room that could use uh, use his assistance in nothing more than just watching how he works and how he conducts his business, helping out with a question about a drill or something like that. Um, it was mentioned earlier that leadership in pro sports doesn't exist. I completely and thoroughly disagree with that. These are by and large 24, 25 year old kids. They don't know a whole lot about what they're doing. The rookies are even younger. So the guys who have been there need to help out with that. That's the Steelers way. That's something that, that's been talked about for, for decades with them from the seventies through to now the veterans help the younger guys out. Um, I let's see if Deontay will do that. I, I say he won't go to all of them, but he's going to be at, at least at a few of them and we'll see which ones matter, and which ones don't, but uh, there, there's, you know, plus show up, get some FaceTime with the boss, maybe discuss the, the contract extension that he's not going to get. Uh, <laughs> he's got business reasons uh, to go there as well as uh, team reasons. I don't think he'll be at all of them, but I think he'll show up to one or two. I'm going to say false as well. He will be there. And I think it will simply be to catch a few balls from Trubisky. That's pretty much it. Catch a few balls from Trubisky go talk to brass, get a kind of feel of what's going to happen from a contract front. And to, like you said, I think it was a good point to avoid any media scrutiny, because yeah. I think the last thing you want to be painted as is a selfish player in the city of Pittsburgh. You just, that, when you're in a contract situation, you don't need to fuel that fire. You know, if anything, if, if you're not going to be there, get ahead of it. You know, I know that that's annoying. I know that it's not something you should have to do, but, the fact is, if you're not there and you, you've had kind of a, a a suggestion or two that your contract is an issue, if you want to avoid that stuff, get ahead of it. If you yes. don't, then fine. You know, the, the slings and arrows are coming at you, though. I hope you I hope you know that. We will make up our own truth if you don't want to give it to us. I'm sorry. It's just the way that it goes. Um, we will report factually that he wasn't at minicamp and everyone will freak out about it. So if you're not going... Just say it flat out beforehand. He's no stranger to Twitter. He doesn't have a problem with social media. Just say that you're not going for whatever reason that you're not going. The more you try to hide it and be secretive about it and act like it's your right to not speak to anybody, the more we're going to respect that right and just make up whatever we want. That, that's just the way the world works. <laughs> that's hilarious. The number two that Kurt uh, put in his article was Stefan Tuit doesn't make an appearance. I'm going to say false. I don't think he will do any activities. I think Stefan will too. It will be there for medical purposes for the team to get an update on the right. medical to see where he is. But I don't think he will hit the field and do any activities. This is just more of an informational. They want to put their hands and eyes on the injury yes, yes. and see what it is. Uh, That's another and, point too, Lance, that, that we should probably be diving into more. We don't know about uh, the off-season health issues that a lot of players have. We don't hear about surgery until it's over or it's due to something that we witnessed on the field. We won't know about that. Uh, David DeCastro had surgery uh, after the season last year. They didn't know of his status. I don't know whether he went to OTAs or not. If he did, he didn't do anything. And he showed up to minicamp, failed his physical, and he hasn't played in the league since. So we don't know... Um, what status they're in, but I'm I'm certain uh, that the team doctors and the team surgeon would like to take a look at a player 
in a, a, a post-surgery environment. They're not nine to five employees. They're gone in the off season. Okay. They, they're, they're not around the team at all. It could be the first time the team has talked to them um, since the season ended, since their surgery. So it, it's, it's important to remember that um, especially when it comes to, to the complete lack of information that anybody has about uh, Stefan to it and his situation. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't want to challenge this and I don't want to suggest it, but it is fair to point out we're not a hundred percent sure uh, on on what exactly is keeping Stefan to it uh, out of the day-to-day lineup. We don't know exactly if this is a mental thing, a physical thing, an emotional thing. Um, I hope he shows up. I certainly think if he's not there or hasn't been there, um, there's no reason to think he's going to be on the team this year, which I think is a definitely a, a stronger than not possibility. I'm curious to see what's going on there. I hope for his sake and I hope for the team's sake that that he's able to play, but I, I don't know. I, I have no idea which way it would go. He's, he's a veteran long enough that he probably uh, has residence in Pittsburgh. So it's not like he's far away. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I, that, that's, I'm not sure we know enough right now to be able to answer that one way or another. And if you think like John Pennington, so you're going to say true or false, he shows. You're going to say false? I, I don't know. Are you going to say okay? I can't say true or false. I don't know okay. whether it's true or not. There's, there's nothing for me to base that opinion on. So I, I'm going to go false. I think he just goes strictly for medical but does not see the field. John Pennington chimed in and said, like to see him at OTAs, but just don't see it. Hope I'm wrong. And good morning, guys. And, yeah, and Richard cool. and, and Richard Krikorian uh, chimed in and said, and two, it's been in the league 10 years, hasn't done much, y'all. Way overrated as a player in Steeler fans' minds. Speak to that. I, is is Because Steeler fans, in, in, in support of what Richard is saying, Steeler fans do have a tendency to overvalue Steeler players. So when you, you, you talk about Stefan to it, if you go to a bar, a Steeler fan, I think it's natural because he's a Steeler. Steeler fans will talk about Stefan to it as the best three technique or, or, or defensive tackle in, in National Football League. Like he's the best player ever. And, and, and people will be like, who's Stefan to it? They'll look at the students. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. They'll say he's a solid player. Cam Hayward's the guy, right? Yeah, have, have Steeler fans overvalued Stefan to it? No, is no, he much so. better than it? it are, are, has Steeler Nation overvalued Stefan to it? Is there any truth to uh, Richard Corian is saying? Is he way overrated as a player? And Steeler fan is putting way too much on you know his return to the team. If anything is way over anything, it, it's that response. I mean, I. I I don't see anybody claiming that Stefan Tuitt is like a top three player at his position. Um, Stefan Tuitt is a very good player. If you know what you're looking at, Richard, if you know the game and you know what you're watching, he's a very good player. If he was physically okay, if he was mentally okay and the Steelers cut him, he would need 15 minutes to get another job. I guarantee it. Uh, he is big. He has experience. He's a good athlete and he's smart as well. They've trained him very well. Um, He's kind of, I don't, I hate to use this word. He's kind of a niche guy though. And there's only certain defenses he's going to be outstanding in. I don't think that they want to try to convert him uh, midway through his career a la Ziggy Hood, but to is a good player. Now, if, if we're talking about missed a lot of time and that that's has something to do with his ability, no shit, dude, we know he hasn't played. That's literally what started this conversation, whether he's going to play or not. We don't know. To to suggest though his career to date um is less than a pretty damn good football player. I 
that's what it looks like to me. I would pump the brakes if somebody's talking Hall of Fame, but he's a good player. He's a player that they would like to have back uh, this season if he's 100%. If he isn't, well, that's kind of the nature of the game. You know, David DeCastro was another player probably very similar to that. Uh, they would have loved to have had him, but physically it wasn't going to work out. It's a brutal business. I don't like the way that it went down, but that that's just kind of the way it goes sometimes. Um, Tua is a, a good player. They would much rather have Tua than not. But, you know, I, I think a lot of it is up to his body and up to his mind. And I, I hope that he's able to find some peace with, with whatever direction this goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I think he's been a solid player. I mean, he's a second-round guy. He got paid. I mean, Steelers typically don't – aren't Steelers do a typically good job in identifying free agents that they want to give money to, particularly on the defensive side of football. He may fall into that category of Lamar Woodley where – got paid and on the second contract due to injury and different other circumstances yeah, didn't yeah. fulfill that. So yeah, um, come on, Woodley, Woodley got paid like top of market. And yes, he did. Games on it. And to be honest, he was, he was a defensive player of the year candidate. Up, up yes. To the point he popped his hamstring chasing Brady down in the third quarter for what would have been his fourth sack of the game. He led the NFL in sacks and he played half of that game. Um, he never got back on track. Now another show for another time. I, I, you know, I don't want to get into to to Woodley here, but um, Woodley did not take care of himself probably as well as he should have, considering his body type, his size. Had he done that, Woodley would have been, geez, well, let's, multiple Pro Bowl, well, All Pro guy. Well, let's not digress on Woodley. Let's jump into because I really want us to get into. Uh, and let me cut it short here. Let me let me cut it short here. Um, because there's two last points. Give me a quick true or false on these two last points from the article. Wide receiver George Pickens ends up being the OTA MVP. True or false? Uh, true. true. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, true. Yes. I mean, just yes. from the way he poses for pictures. Well, it, it, yeah, not only that, it's his willingness to talk to the media, which, like I said, I think Tomlin did that intentionally to get him to shut up a little bit. And uh, the hype that he has going into it. There, There is nothing more that Steelers fans love than uh, a, a second round prospect who has first round talent. They absolutely love the bargain. The, the, the undrafted free agent who's the second most popular guy on the team behind the, the years in which they have a super popular second round pick like they have now. Those guys that are, are undervalued in terms of the NFL's current uh, drafting and signing process, Pickens, Pickens already won that award. I don't think they even need to have OTAs for, for him to have won that. The last one, and, and I agree, he will be the MVP. I mean, just his photo of him watching the draft makes him the MVP, clearly. Uh, quarterback Mason Rudolph steps up, whatever steps up means. Yeah, what um, mean? <laughs> uh, tr tr true or false? I'm going to say it's true because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking he can't be worse than whatever Steeler Nation thinks of him. So merely him completing some balls because, you know, whatever. I'm just going to say true. He steps up. Sure. Sure. Um, <laughs> he's, he's playing for another job, you know, yes. he's got to show value uh, to get another team to, to trade some assets to get out of the situation that he's in. And he's not stupid. He knows that this is what it is. Um, I'll bet he's kind of bitter about it. I kind of wouldn't blame him. Um, it's unfortunate again, that the nature of the business, but um He's not going to sulk about it. He's not going to whine, cry. He's cut. He's just simply, he's not on this team. 
He's not going to be. He needs to show um, that given the, the situation that he's in, that he can be valuable, that he is worth somebody else's time and attention. If he wants to keep the, the largest by far year of his contract, he's going to have to find a way to get a team to want to acquire him um, on that contract. And the odds of that aren't even very good. And if he does anything wrong, it's, it's only going to decrease that value or decrease those odds even more. So yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll show up, he'll step up, he'll do whatever they want him to do until they caught him or trade him. Yeah, I think we're saying that uh, Mason Rudolph showed up to OTAs two weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> needless to say. To honest, Mason Rudolph's resume <laughs> has been drawn up over the last five years. Yeah, they, pretty they much. Made, it, it, there's, there's a rival. I don't want to call it a rival. There, there's another Steelers site and another podcast that dedicated a lot of ink and a lot of minutes to discussing the idea um, of, of Mason Rudolph's place uh, on this team. I just thought that that was funny. Um, you know, are they serious? Does he really have a chance to start? It's like, no. Why, why is this even a question? They paid Trubisky one of the higher dollar amounts per season that they've given a free agent. They don't spend that much money in free agency very often. And then they just drafted 20 overall, uh, a, a player at his position. There is yes. no way Mason Rudolph is starting. For this. Are you kidding? Why are we even discussing this? He's off the team until they, they have opportunities to find value. They are paying him exactly $0 in the offseason. There's no reason to get rid of him now unless somebody comes to them and says, we'll give you a first-round pick next year for him. Now, do it now. They, they yes. would do that. Otherwise, Mason. they're going to wait through camp, see if there are injuries, see what happens. There's no reason to get rid of him. Yeah, Mason Rudolph is the guy that caught his girlfriend texting other guys and, and wonders if she's going, if their relationship is ending. Yes, yeah, it's just a matter of time. It's a question of when, and I'm sure yes. Rudolph knows that. I, I don't want to suggest that Mason yes. Rudolph is dumb or something. I'm sure he is perfectly aware of what's going on. In fact, if anything, the, the latest point that Rudolph could have gotten that impression was two seconds after the announcement of Trubisky's signing. The picket part of it is really just complete dismissal of Rudolph even being there. They don't care at all. It doesn't make a difference anymore. They overhauled their quarterback room, and they they have their reasons for doing it. If you watch the show and you've listened to me rant about Mason Rudolph, you know I'm in favor of that. I, I all due respect to him. Um, I wish him the best of luck. I don't think he is nearly the the evil person that people have made him out to be, but it, it's not going to work here. You know, I, I we, he's he's going to get run as a backup. He has utility right. as a backup in the NFL for a couple seasons. You know, we, he's, we, he's going to get paid yeah. well. I mean, we we just know that uh, you know bad quarterbacks are evil people. So there's a lot of evil <laughs> people in the National We love Mitch Trubisky because because what we yes. hate more is coaches that can't call perfect plays. Do well, let's good jump into. Plays. Call let's jump into plays for our crappy quarterback because he's let's really jump good. into our let's jump into our six pack. I'm I'm gonna tease it. I'm gonna jump to you first. And the six pack is basically Neil came up with a concept to answer some questions that aren't really predictive questions, but just some questions that are more that will lead to a little bit more discussion. Is that a fair way to describe it, Neil? Yeah, I think so. Okay, sounds good. So let me let me jump into my first one for you. Is Tomlin capable of being a successful coach without Big Ben? This is the first time he will have coached without Big Big Ben Roethlisberger as his quote-unquote franchise quarterback and field general. Again, 
Is Tomlin capable of being successful without Big Ben? Um, I think that's is that, it, is that a good one? Is that a good one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I, because I'll I'll say this: there there are layers to this. What's really interesting? It's a bit of trivia. You look around the league over the last twenty years. Mike Tomlin is among the very few coaches of, of the last 20 years, whether they still have the job or lost it, got it back, lost it again, whatever, who did not have to groom a new quarterback following a successful veteran. Belichick might fit that, maybe. Yes. Technically, he's had Brady, but yeah, he had yes. to do it later. And jury's out on, on how well that's working. Sean Payton never had to do that. Mike McCarthy never recovered from that. In fact, I bet everything I have that Mike McCarthy is not the Cowboys coach this time next year. It, it's We don't know Mike Tomlin without a high-level quarterback unless we want to say, let's put up over 15 years Tomlin with Roethlisberger versus Tomlin without Roethlisberger, which means the times that he had Mason Rudolph, Duck Hodges, uh, Josh Dobbs, Landry Jones, Byron Leftwich, Charlie Batch. There are more. Name them. Throw, throw out the names. You put all that together, combined, clearly they're not Ben Roethlisberger. It, to suggest that there's a direct relationship between the two, I think, is misleading. To, to say Tomlin is a better coach with Ben under center, well, yeah. I mean, I, I I don't know. There's no way to prove otherwise. I mean, Ben's a great player. Ben's the one playing the game. Um, I think Tomlin, for his part, is an excellent coach. I think he's had success. Um, I think he has shortcomings. He's made mistakes. There are things that have not gone the way that that um, I'm sure he intended them to go. I don't think he's going to win with the quarterbacks that he has right now. <laughs> okay. I don't think though, that is because Mike Tomlin is a bad coach. I think the game requires a quarterback to play at a high level. If you want to win consistently over the next three years, if you, if his quarterbacks are Mitch Trubisky, rookie, Kenny Pickett, second year, Kenny Pickett in, in some combination of that, I don't think this team is going to be overly successful. I will say, though, that because Tomlin is a great coach, they're not going to go 4-13. and 13. Right. They're going to fight around that 7-10, and 8-9 and nine mark because he's a good coach. They can get a lot more out of what they do have, despite the limitation of, at, at quarterback, which we're going to see when they go up against Cincinnati again, when we, when we see them go up against Kansas City, maybe to some extent, um, the Chargers, the Bills, the, the, the big swing and dicks of the AFC. The thing they have all have in common is an outstanding quarterback. And the Steelers are nowhere close to that. I don't think that is a, an indication of excellent or poor coaching. I think it's just the unfortunate nature of the unbalanced talent level in the NFL. So to answer your question, I, I, I think we're talking about two mutually exclusive things. I think you can be a great coach who doesn't have a quarterback and they're not going to win. In other words, they're, they're going to become more than the sum of their parts because the coaching is really good, but we're not going to see it like that because the record isn't going to be good. 
Now, Richard brought up a point about the winning. He said there's – and I'm going to get into – I'm going to focus on part of it just to give my quick take to what you said. Uh, the no-losing season is more having been than Tomlin. There for the argument, he is a great coach because of a winning record is a bad rush to judgment. I will say this. In terms of defining a great coach, it, it, it's based on wins and losses. You can't be a great coach and your team's – finish under 500 consistently. You're not a great coach. The ultimate reflection of coaching is winning. However, I think where fans, a lot of fans, myself included at times, we mess up in terms of the range, the realistic range of wins that a team should get. So if you look at a team's yeah. talent objectively, right, you take a step back and you say, man, this is a six, a six win team. Right. Objectively, not in the fan base. Right. Bam. You look at the fan base. The fan base says this is a 12 win team. What never happens is fans don't. And I do it as well. We don't reset our expectations. Our expectations are always true to us when they might not have been true to start with in the first place. They could have been unrealistic. So you can be a very good coach when you have a team that's not very good and you get like three or four additional wins yeah. and you still finish seven and 10. Whereas if you were a bad coach, like that coach in Jacksonville, yeah. you wouldn't go three and 10. I don't want a game. <laughs> you go two and 15. So there is a little nuance to it. In my opinion, it's, so it's just not as simple. And this comment yeah, it's, is it's, so incredibly exclusive to, to nothing. Trying to refute one side of that does not make true the other side. In other words, these are mutually exclusive things. You can be a great coach and you can coach a, a, a talentless bad team for, for some duration. The presence of Ben wins you a lot of games with whatever coach that's football all we're saying is the quarterback position is vastly more important than the head coach position is argue with me all day on that there's no way that that's not true putting both of them on the same level like it's one or the other is is asinine it's the definition of of futility what you're not making a point of any kind you have no idea you have no idea what Ben Roethlisberger is without Mike Tomlin. And I'm not saying that that, that is necessary. I'm just saying you don't have the other side of, of the coin to argue anything that you're saying. It, it's stupid. I, it, I get tired of getting into this all the time. There are a lot of proven, absolute, and complete failure coaches at the NFL level. There are a lot of them. There are very few who draw winning teams every year. There is a direct correlation between winning every year and having an outstanding quarterback. But there are also plenty of outstanding quarterbacks who have bad coaches and don't win. So it, all of this is it, it's completely circular. It depends on whether or not you like the people involved. Because guess what? The, the Ben stands are not going to give Mike Tomlin a shred of credit. The over-Tomlin apologists are going to undermine the value of the quarterback position and with it, Ben Roethlisberger. There's no other – the middle ground is the reality, but nobody ever argues that because it's only one side or the other that ever asked that question. All Mike right, Tomlin is a good football coach. Shoot period. me my question. You can't tell me that he's not. Um, 
because one of ours touched into yours already, I'm going to jump into this one. Going to give you a scenario. Okay. Wow. Fourth and six. Steelers opponent has the ball. Midfield. Steelers are up three with 59 seconds left in the game. What Steelers edge rusher of all time from any period do you want on the defensive right side? In other words, the quarterback's blind side. Ooh, that, edge that, rusher. Key down. That 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 that's uh that that's I, I, I I'm gonna make people mad with this one. Uh, I'm gonna go defensive player of the year, James Harrison. I'm gonna go with defensive of the year play James Harrison because he was so hot. I mean, James's strength, his nastiness, his bend. I'm I'm gonna go with James Harrison, followed by uh, T.J. Watt. But I'm gonna go with James Harrison. I'm gonna go with James Harrison to make that play. Um, it just something about the nastiness of James Harrison in that situation. When I saw James Harrison almost kill Colt McCoy in the game, I was convinced <laughs> that James Harrison could lift the earth if need be. And he could. And to to get a sack, good. to get a sack at that moment. Who would you I'll, pick? I'll add this. You know, the, the, the real wrinkle to this, Lance, I, I was hoping to, to get an opportunity to address it. Fourth and six, in certain run games, you might run the ball. You might sneak <laughs> that. To be honest, um, there's not a, a, a significant flaw in TJ Watts game. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that at all, but James Harrison is one of the best run defensive outside linebackers of the last 30 years in the NFL. Um, Harrison. That's such a, it's such a toss up. Um, I probably, honestly, what, what factor do you even use? I mean, it's not Clark it's, Hagen's. It's not Clark. It's, it's not going to be Clark. It's not going to be Chris Carter. It's not going to be. It's not going to be Stevenson Sylvester. Yes. <laughs> you remember Chris Carter? <laughs> he was the smallest outside linebacker in Steelers history. It's not going to be Jarvis Jones. Not going to. Uh, God, I didn't even think of him. I thought of Chris Carter before I thought of Jarvis Jones. That, that tells you all you need to know about Jarvis Jones. Let me so. jump into before I jump into uh, my next question for you. Um, and big up the state of the Steelers. That's a new name here. Big up to that. Big up to you. Um, isn't putting the team together part of being a great coach, acquiring talent, in my opinion, is a piece of being a great coach through draft and free agency. Everything's part of being a great coach. And I think that's the mm-hmm. other thing that gets lost in the way the media translates what's being a great coach is. It gets boiled down to this mystical X's and O's thing. Like, yep. and, and I keep telling people all the time, That's whether that you, changes every year and it's usually whatever coach just won the Super Bowl. Now he's at the yes. coach. So like I, you know, I, that's a great point. State of the Steelers. Part of being a successful head coach is the CEO aspect of it and managing the complete total vision of the team and what you see and what you want it to be. Let me ask my second one. And I'll ask it because you asked the one about the outside linebacker question. T.J. Watt is the Steelers' best player on defense, but is he the most irreplaceable player on defense? On defense. Um, Yes. uh, Right now, And I know what the the counter to this is. 
I would argue it, it this gets tough because it, it's such kind of a year to year thing. But I got some doozies saw, for you. I got some doozies for you. We saw a massive drop off defensively um, when they took hits on their defensive line. And I can't even begin to imagine what would have happened if Cam Hayward had gone down in like week four. What missed a few games that they weren't entirely terrible defensively in. A um, couple pretty bad ones. And certainly you're less of a team if Watt isn't on the field. Now, I, I, would, I would argue this. I think their floor is lower if Cam Hayward's not on the field. I think their ceiling is lower if TJ Watt's not on the field. So do you want to bolster your bad plays or do you want to maximize your splash plays? To me, I would take the splash plays in that case. So I would say Watt because I think Watt just has more overall ability. But at the same time, if this makes sense, and, and call me out if it doesn't, I think I think Cam Hayward was the most valuable player, and I think T.J. Watt was the most outstanding player. So I, I might go <clears throat> now. I, I, I'd have to say Watt. I, I think they, just, they, they don't have the pop without Watt there. I don't think they have the playmakers – off the edge in a, a, a fundamental role uh, to be able to limit an offense as much if Watt is not on the field. I am not trying to undermine Cam Hayward, who is, I'll honestly, I will retire from media and spend five years researching and lobbying on behalf of Cam Hayward to get him into the Hall of Fame. And I mean that. A damn good player, vastly underrated player. I think Watt just brings more of the splash plays in the big moments. And, and that's what he did last year. I love when you talk about floor and ceiling because I always get confused when people talk about the floor and the ceiling and I start looking at the floor moving and the ceiling getting higher and lower. It's always get you know always when I think about the ceiling. Interesting enough, I would take I know the importance of splash plays. But interestingly enough, I would want to minimize I would want to lower the floor to be more consistent down to down where I might not need splash plays. But sure. being that as it being that as it may, when I was thinking of this question, I was thinking that the most irreplaceable player on this team is Minka Fitzpatrick. And just in the era in which we're playing in the passing league, I think that without Minka quarterbacking the secondary, teams just hunt that secondary and they get it in chunks and in, in splash plays and you know pass rush win rates are just you know they're kind of low in general i mean most of the time i mean a guy is rushing a passer for four quarters and he's successful a few times he's getting some pressures but more than likely i mean if a quarterback drops back 45 times i mean tj watt is getting pressure about six seven times that might be enough to absolutely change a game you know, if he hits the football, you get four turnovers and that's it. But, you know, pass rush is is, is a big splash position in general. So I was just thinking about Minka Fitzpatrick when I thought about this question. Shoot me your next one, Neil. My next one. And you have to follow me a little bit on this. Uh-oh. Le'Veon Bell and Najee Harris. Bell was a plotter, not quick, didn't have the breakaway speed. Totally 
reinvented himself between year one and year two. Najee, I think it's fair to say at, at the point that they're in, in, in their careers, going into the draft, Najee would have been seen as the superior runner and the superior athlete to Bell. Najee is the most natural looking 6'1", 230 pound guy you'll ever see. Do you feel Najee Harris has the ability to make himself more of a playmaker, quicker, faster, maybe not the, he won't have the breakaway ability, but the ability to make guys miss, which is what Bill, what Bell really had. And he's a better natural runner. Do you think Najee Harris is capable of making a leap from year one to year two, the way that, that Bell did in 2014? Nah, no way. I think Najee Harris is what he is. He's a banger in between the tackle guy. I think he's a one-dimensional back. That dimension can be very good, but I think when you add Le'Veon Bell's ability, particularly to catch, to catch the ball out of the backfield, as well as split out wide in the formation and really attack linebackers and safeties in the passing game, Le'Veon Bell with a touch more juice is the ideal running back. Even his running style in the turn in the way he made people miss hesitate i think he i think he made average offensive lines better with his running style the problem was his lack of athleticism i think when he got injured took his athleticism to a point where his style could no longer be as effective because he didn't have as much juice so he started with a half a bottle instead of a full bottle of juice. And so when he lost a little bit of juice, his style wasn't conducive to being successful. But I think his his period of excellence is the prototypical back that you want in the National Football League. True three down, blitz pickup, run routes, excellent between the tackles, make guys miss. Najee Harris will never have as many 20-plus yard runs in the season as Le'Veon Bell. And like, the thing with Bell is he didn't get those on his speed. He didn't no, get those on pure no. athleticism. He got it on say. I don't think we've seen a, a runner, um, certainly not in Pittsburgh, who was as lethal off of a cut coming out of the backfield as Bell was. Do you remember? And people, people will no doubt remember back to this. But do you remember um, the Ben to Bryant ninety-five yard touchdown against Cincinnati? I believe so. If you yes, watch yes. that, this is this is also 2014 or maybe 2015. That's if up the right side that, line when he beat uh the, the corner from Michigan. Michigan kid, Leon yeah. Hall. Yeah, Leon, Leon Hall. Hall did that. That was over before it started. And the reason was Bell coming out of the end zone with Ben in shotgun. And this people hated Todd Haley. I I loved the way Todd Haley called the game, and this is why. Gutsy. To, to put Ben in shotgun with Bell next to him. They kept their options balanced, and they gave Cincinnati the chance to defend this however they wanted to defend it. They put two linebackers on Bell. They bracketed him inside and out to defend against the, the short pass. That is what brought the safety down, and that is what left 86-year-old Leon Hall on Martavis Bryant on the wide side of the field Ben saw it, flagged for it, called, went deep. Boom, simple. That was the easiest play they made all year. If you watch that back, though, play action fake the bell up the middle, 
three guys converged on him. That's how dangerous Le'Veon Bell was. And Cincinnati, if anybody knew that, it was Cincinnati. He shredded Cincinnati over, over the course of his Steelers career. That I counter trade, boy, that that counter trade they used to play, they used to run the yep. bell with they uh, won six times in two drives. He got like literally 20 yards a pop out of it. I mean, it. DeCastro pulling bang, <laughs> yeah, kick fun. out. I mean, oh, he, was, they, he was killing him. So, so definitely, I, I, I don't think there's a ghost of a chance of Najee Harris being as good as Le'Veon Bell. And that's not to say that. Najee Harris won't be really good. I yeah. think it's just the ghost of a chance. Let's end it on this one. Now I, I'm gonna I'm give you I'm gonna say I wanted to hit you with the A B one. I knew it. I but but it but it's <laughs> so it's so late in the show. <laughs> do you want to save it or do you want to I kind of want to end the show with the A B question? Let's, let's tease it at least. Okay, let's see tease it. Goes, this. See what see what the the reaction to it is, and see if we need to dive back into it next week. So you so you want me to so you want me yeah. to, so here's the last one be, because we're at the hour mark. Save your one for me till next week. My last yeah. one. So here's my last one for Neil, and I definitely want to get your thoughts in the chat. And Neil may expand this. <laughs> is Antonio Brown? the best wide receiver in Steelers history. I'm waiting to see a response. Best wide receiver in Steelers history. Um, absolutely. And it isn't close. Um, you and I talked about this uh, off air. If you watch Antonio Brown and you, you see how he is playing within the, the the framework, within the context of today's game. No one in, in Steelers history, and I, I might even go as far as to argue in, in NFL history, was faster, more explosive, more clean coming out of his breaks than Brown was. Brown got himself open better than any other receiver that the Steelers have ever had did. Brown is he's far smarter of a player than he was given credit for might be might be among the greatest route runners in NFL history legitimately he had speed what he lacked in size he made up for the fact that he was probably the most dangerous open field runner in the NFL during his era he caught short stuff he caught mid stuff he caught deep stuff he did everything no other Steelers receiver even comes close to that. They were all one, maybe two-dimensional types of guys. Outstanding players. Don't get me wrong. Two of them are in the Hall of Fame. Two Super Bowl MVP, three Super Bowl MVPs. Six rings each, for, six rings total between them. Something, something like that. You mean Yancey Thigpen isn't the Yancey Thigpen isn't the greatest Steeler? Yancey Thigpen is not the greatest. Okay, I just want <laughs> after Brown slaughtered Yancey Thigpen's career record and then broke it six times in the next seven years. <laughs> no, Big Ben does not. Louis Lips? Louis Lips, is a, Louis, Lips? Louis Lips is a damn good receiver. Louis Lips is a guy who should be bitter about the way the NFL has played today. He could have made bank <laughs> if he was out today. Pure deep guy. Pure deep guy. Probably his only real asset. Um, a, a, a great receiver, more in today's terms, I think, than in the, the era that he played in. And kind of goes to show the Steelers, in a lot of ways, got ahead of, of um, the trends of what the NFL would be 
the exception of quarter. It was another show we need to get into at some point. It, it's football geek stuff. I'm not sure if people would really be into it, but the Steelers drafted some quarterbacks who would have been killer today. I'll argue to the day I die, Bubby Brister was a much better quarterback than people would have given him credit for. Yikes. They just coach him the way the game is played now. If he played now, Bubby had a cannon arm. He was, seriously, there are not many guys that have that kind of arm talent. Mark Malone, far better athlete than what he probably should have been subjected to. If they helped him more with that, if they framed more of, of what his real skill set was, he had the arm to play as well, but he could move. You know, Malone, Malone was a damn good athlete. I'm getting way off the subject here. Sorry, you got that look on your face. Uh, my opinion, I, I don't think it's close. Antonio Brown, in the time that he was in Pittsburgh, I am aware of how it ended. I understand what it means to a team. I also get how you are naturally selective over these moments when it's <laughs> negative to the team and you don't like the guy. Now it becomes a character issue, okay? Now it's a problem for you. And somehow that that creates the 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 myth that he doesn't deserve this honor because uh, it, there were issues when he left and they're bad stuff. They got rid of him and and they should have. They had no choice. The whole situation sucked for everybody involved. It should not have happened. I'll I'll put the blame on AB for that, but it doesn't change the fact that dude was absolutely phenomenal when he was in Pittsburgh. My opinion, one of the three best players this franchise has ever had. Three or four. I might give you four. Wow. But he's he's top five in, in ability. He's second, if not first, in production. It, nobody was as good at their position as Antonio Brown was in, in this era. Go back to Mean Joe, who would be number one on my list. Nobody dominated at their position the way Antonio Brown did in comparison to the rest of the league. Nobody. He, he's absolutely their best overall draft pick ever. Oh, yeah. For value yeah. as a sixth-round draft pick. Before draft we get pick. out of here as a not, draft pick, yes. Sign. Draft pick. Speak to Steelers Freak Point right real quick before we get out of here, ranking the best Steeler wide receivers. I think he's – I don't know about lips in there, but 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 I but I like hey, the list. A.B. Stallworth, um, A.B. Stallworth, Swan, Lips, and Hines. I can't top five. Hines. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think Lips over Hines. I would go Hines and, you know, put any name as fifth. I would go A.B. Starworth Hines and whatever name you want to place there. There's a, there's a bunch that would compete for that, I think. Um, Talent-wise, it would really pisses me off is uh, freaking Santonio would have been um, easily in this conversation. Um, that's That was frustrating, too, because I, I don't the Steelers did not want him to go, and he just got stupid, you know, just did dumb things. Um Play dumb games, win dumb prizes. That was Santonio Holmes. And that prize was eventually the draft pick that, that brought in Antonio Brown. So um, I think the Steelers won out in that deal overall. But I, I don't think anybody is close to Brown, really. Um, Stallworth would probably be my second as well. Um, Swan, I think, would have been. And Swan would have been really interesting in today's era as well. Perhaps maybe even more than than Stallworth was. Stallworth had the physical ability uh, to to play back then that he would have today as well. Swan just wasn't as big. Um, that that hurts. But his athleticism on the outside, the dude was a hawk. Um, he and Lips were were similar in that way. Um, I think Swan was the better of the two. Ward was incredibly smart. Ward knew how to get himself open. 
Ward was great after the catch as well. Uh, he knew how to set guys up. He knew how to use his whole body. Uh, a great all-around receiver, probably the best all-around receiver that they had, but um, not even close to as explosive and, and as much of a playmaker as the other guys on that list were. So lots of different reasons to take different guys, but I'm, I'm okay with that, the exception of um, I'd put Ward over Lips, but I can I can hear Lips in that conversation. Listeners, thank you for chiming in with us. A little bit long today. That's fine. Um, you know, we found some good topics to talk about. I enjoy your questions, Neil. I, I, I definitely thought of some good ones for you. I definitely was going to bring up the AB one. You knew that. Oh, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. we, we definitely knew that was going to, you know, we were going to bring that one up. After three years, um, I'm not going to stop it for the next 20, I'm sure. So that was great that we did. I want to thank everybody that chimed in. I want to thank all the participation. Um that everybody in the chat gave us. I think it was a fantastic show. I want to thank everybody Steelers for chiming in. Would you say? I said Steelers freak, you are correct. Yes, Stallworth absolutely. 25 years before that, yeah. Stallworth would have been a beast in the 90s. Stallworth was like Herman Moore. He's a guy you could have gotten him the ball 130 times. I mean, he he, he was he would have been an excellent. I, I hate this term because it, it's thought of so negatively. He would have been an excellent possession receiver. He was big. He had athleticism. He could run the seam. He could run the post. Stallworth was damn good in an era where it, it just wasn't utilized the same way. Too much deeper stuff, not enough you know, mid-level possession stuff. Like Chris Carter, for example. Chris Carter would have sucked in, in the 70s, and he, would, he dominated in the time that he was in. I think he'd be marginal today. Stallworth is, is the other way around. Stallworth would have been better. Uh, later in, in in the development of the NFL. Sorry. No worries. With that, we're going to go ahead and get out of here. And as always, tune in, tell a friend, and subscribe. Go Steelers.